0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord, your mercies are new every morning, and we seek to have eyes for your mercies. And we seek your mercy in your word. And I pray, Lord, that you will speak to us in this time. In Jesus' name. Well, last night we began our study of belovedness by looking at the life of Saul, Israel's first king, and we said that Saul gives us a picture of disbelief. I said some hard things about him, but remember this was not to point fingers. We were using this as a mirror to examine our own hearts. We all have pockets and places of disbelief and doubt within us. And when we are acting from these places of doubt, we are going to forge our own path. And I think most of us know and understand that our own path, when it is unchecked, unhindered, unconfessed, is ultimately a path to destruction. So, you know, you you have this thing you enjoy that becomes a habit, that becomes an addiction. You have a propensity to overspending that becomes a great debt. Or or perhaps there's some person you're desperate to hold on to. You begin to control until you repel the person. And so in each of these paths, we raise defenses against the truth. And our dishonesty with ourselves, with other people, and with God locks us into a withered and fruitless existence, rather than the abundant life that Jesus wants for us. And so we look in the mirror, not to condemn ourselves, but to confess what we see, and be cleansed, and have the breath of the Spirit blowing new life within us. Saul, unfortunately, does not check this path. He does not confess, and we're going to see this morning how he follows his own path to that place of destruction But now as we do this, we're going to see his story running parallel with the story of David. And so last night I gave you a little bit of a preview. I told you that David and Saul have so much in common. They are both gifted warriors. They were both anointed kings. They were both religious. There was ultimately one great difference between them. Saul did not believe and God's love for him, that he would be faithful to his word. And David, whose name means beloved, did believe. And so David's belief, his resilience and holding on to the promises of God gives us a picture of our own pilgrimage. Uh, What is our, our journey as Christians all about? It's simply to believe. We know this. Jesus was asked, what what do we have to be doing to do the work of the Father? And what he said was, the work that the Father has given is to believe in the one whom he has sent. And why did he send him? For God so loved the world. So, So our pilgrimage is simply to believe in God's love for us as evidenced most greatly in the sending of His Son. We will never run out of ways to ponder this amazing truth. Now, last weekend, I was able to hear a talk for the first time in 10 years from Jerry Root. I mentioned him last night when I was speaking, and, and one of the things that he did that I, I wanna share for our purposes is he held up a pen, and he said, I, I'm going to give you a sure word. This is a pen. That's a sure word, it's a pen, but what else can we say about it? Um, we can talk about what it's made out of, we can talk about its purpose, we can talk about its production, its first cause, its formal cause, its, its final cause. We can talk about how ineffective it is writing in better. So we can have a sure word about the pen, but we don't have a last word about a pen, if this is true of a plastic pen, how much more true of God? He then reminded us of a scene from the Chronicles of Narnia when Lucy returns for the first time and she has this reunion with Aslan and she says, you've gotten bigger. <laughs> and, and, and he says to her, no, you've grown. Every year that you grow, I will be bigger to you. And so as we are seeking to know and understand and walk in the belovedness that is ours, this is only going to expand. We are never going to get to the end of this. And as we turn now to David's life, I want to introduce him in the same way I did with Saul. I actually want to tell you where he's going to land. I want to look at the end of his reign and then we'll backtrack and and see what the path was that brought him there. Now you don't have to flip in your Bibles for what I'm about to share. I'm going to summarize the last three chapters of 2 Samuel. These last three chapters to modern Western eyes are a hodgepodge of stories. They're haphazard. They're the PS at the end of a letter. They're an appendix to a book. But to Hebrew eyes, these last three chapters are a carefully constructed literary unit called a chiasm. So with a chiasm, you have mirror points that, that between them have the climactic center point. So if you could picture maybe a house reflected on a still lake, you would see clouds above and clouds below and trees above and trees below and the house here and the house here. And then the shoreline, they all work the way to the shoreline, that's the center point. And for the sake of time, I'm not gonna tell you what all those mirror points are in chapters 21 through 24. I'm just gonna give you the shoreline. The shoreline, what we have there at the end of David's reign is a conversation between David and God, between the lover and the beloved. It's an exchange. It is David's deathbed prayer. It is the Lord's oracle in response. And what David says in the midst of all of this is, you rescued me because you delighted in me. This is the end for David's reign. This is where he's going. What is the path? How do we get there? And so now for this, we can go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. And the prophet Samuel has just pronounced judgment over Saul. He tells him that the the anointing for kingship has been removed from you. He had also spoken of this in in chapter 13, where he told Saul that the Lord was going to replace his line with a king after his own heart. This word heart is very important for what follows. This word heart is repeated in the call of David. And so you have this call of David in chapter 16. If you grew up in the church, this is a very familiar story to you. Samuel is sent to the house of Jesse, and there he meets all these tall, strapping young men. Any one of them looks like he would just be a fantastic warrior king. And the Lord has to say to Samuel, quit looking at the outside. I am concerned with the heart the core of the person. And it's David, the the smallest among them, who's not regarded as worthy of meeting the prophet, who Samuel is told to anoint. And so already we have a foil to what we learned of Saul. If you'll remember, Saul was a man who was known for his height. He was head and shoulders above the rest. He was also described as being little in his own eyes. David, who was literally the smallest, is made great by God's choosing. This is a word that David embraced and believed, and it was with humility that David would later write, your gentleness has made me great. We have another difference and that David is told that this anointing is not going to depart, or we're told of it. So if you're looking in um, chapter 16, verse 13, here is the description of the anointing for David. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now I want to clarify a crucial point. These verses have nothing to do with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that is ours under the new covenant, that the Spirit has made a home in us if we are in Christ. What is being described here belongs to a different covenant, when the Holy Spirit would come to particular people for a particular task. To be the leader of God's people was a task for one. For, for David to be anointed necessarily meant that the Spirit left Saul. We see also that Saul is afflicted by an evil spirit. This is something that we see throughout the scriptures. Um, We see this with Job. We see this later on for David. We see Jesus afflicted by Satan himself in the desert. We know that Paul was afflicted by a messenger of Satan. What is different for Saul in his case is that he has no concept of God's goodness to fall on, to endure what is happening to him, or to resist the temptation that comes with it. He is undone. And so it is David who we learn is a known musician who comes to the palace to soothe the king. Now this is the first of a number of details that the author is going to give us to show that that David has good intentions and he is not Forcing his way to the throne. So for example, the first time he steps into the palace, this was not of his own volition. He, he, he didn't get anointed and then come to the palace and say, well, you need to make me a page now, or I need to be a servant in the army. He is actually summoned to the palace. We see also that that he is soothing to Saul and and, um, and throughout this account, we're going to see that he's submissive and deferential. And so when things begin to fall apart, when there is this great conflict between David and Saul, it is not going to be because David was in some way obnoxious or aggressive. It is going to be Saul's own pathology that leads to the conflict. From here, we come to that most famous of stories, David and Goliath. You know this story even if you didn't grow up in the church. This story is not here so that we can, you know, find our own stones and defeat our own giants. This is not what it's about. Most of the time in this world, the Goliaths do win. Why is this here? What is this about? What we have in this is the evidence of David's anointing. We see his larger purpose, we see the foreshadowing of his reign, and there's a really important detail here that we don't want to miss. The giant is from Gath. Gath had been home to the Anakim, a particularly tall race, And when the spies who were sent out by Moses to scout out the land, saw the Anakim, they came back and said, we can't fight them. It's too much. And so the people of Israel trembled and believed the spies. Saul and the army of Israel, who are paralyzed before Goliath, are like these 10 spies and and the grumbling Israelites of the wilderness. They do not trust the Lord to help them despite the clear word of the Lord's favor that was given in the Mosaic covenant. But there were two spies, Joshua and Caleb, who did recall the promise, and they said to the people that God would give them victory over the giants if the Lord delights in us, and yes, the Lord does delight in us. That same phrase that we see in David's deathbed prayer, And so this points to David, who comes and is perplexed that nobody is fighting the giant. Did the Lord not promise they would have victory over their enemies? And so David goes into this battle, believing and trusting that the Lord is going to do this. He's not relying on natural strength. He knows that he has the Lord's promise. That's all he needs to know. And so this defeat of Goliath, is not only a sign of his anointing, but it shows that he, as king, is going to fulfill the mandate and and permanently subdue the Canaanite people. That's gonna be one of the great outcomes of his reign. Now, following this victory, we have more evidence that David does not come to the throne through ambition or aggression. We see this in the encounter that he has with Jonathan. Jonathan is Saul's son, a potential heir to the throne. But what happens in chapter 18 is this, verse 3. Chapter 18, verse 3. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David. And his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt now the word here for robe is actually royal robe most commentators say that in giving david his royal robe he was renouncing his own claim to the throne and we'll have evidence later in the book that backs up the idea And so what we see is that David, like Jesus, is not seeking his own glory. When he comes to the throne, it will not be by force. It will not be by his own effort. It will simply be that he waits until the Lord himself raises him up to that position. So let's just pause here and and summarize what we have said so far. David, who in the flesh was small, becomes great by the Lord's own hand. The anointing is upon him. He believes this word, he acts, he inspires the army of Israel who then fight the Philistines after the defeat of Goliath. It is belief in God's word that equips him for work in God's kingdom. This is true for us in the kingdom of God as we battle not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and the principalities. Saul, who in the flesh was large, saw himself as little. He failed to believe the word that was spoken over him. For this, the anointing leaves. He is paralyzed before the enemies of God. Now, if we are a believer, we do not lose the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But when we are stuck in disbelief, we will be paralyzed. We will be ineffective in our work for the kingdom. We're not going to storm the gates of hell. And so knowing our belovedness, it is not there simply for our own comfort, although you know that in itself would be sufficient to ponder this. It is also for the sake of mission. It is to the glory of God and his greater kingdom that we grow in this knowledge. Following these events, we have a celebration of victory through the song of the women that you see in verse seven, still chapter eight, verse seven. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his 10,000s. Now, this will be used as a taunt later on. There's no reason to believe that the women at the time meant to taunt Saul with this. I mean, first of all, it's hyperbole. They're just trying to celebrate this new young soldier. They probably thought Saul could take it. They probably thought that Saul is not going to be intimidated um, or feel threatened by this teenage shepherd who, as far as anyone knows at this point, is some one-hit wonder, But for Saul, this becomes a tipping point for his envy. And we want to spend a little bit of time here. I think that when we truly lack belief in in the, the affirmation we have from God, this puts us at high risk for envy. Now, envy is particularly dangerous. I'm going to explain why, but let's define what it is. Envy is is one of the only vices, it is said, that has no pleasure to it. It begins with coveting. It starts with, well, you want what someone else has. And this is actually a little bit different than jealousy. Properly speaking, jealousy is when someone has what rightfully should be yours, But with coveting, you want what someone else has, and when this goes on, checked, unhindered, you begin to have envy, and this is where you you come to resent the person who has what you want, to the point where you don't just want this thing, but you actually hate the person who has it. And what does this eventually lead to? Eventually, it leads to hatred of the God who has allowed the other person to have what you want. And so before envy took root, Saul could be comforted by the songs of David. But once envy takes root, these same songs, which were likely some of the psalms we have in our Psalter, actually ignite Saul's murderous rage. So we see in verse 10, after the song of the women, the next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, not the first time, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand and Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. Now, the antidote to envy is to know that we are loved. And I think a great way to understand this is to think about how this takes shape in the life of a family, particularly in the life of children. And so I'm going to share with you a treasured possession This is a Christmas card that my brother made in kindergarten. He was five at the time. Here's his handprint. I was four at the time. He has painstakingly copied or or traced the teacher's dots to wish the family Merry Christmas. There was one exception to this Christmas wish, which he wrote in his own hands at the top, No Lisa, not Lisa. (laughs) So this is a very common thing, is it not? I, I was a threat. I was an obstacle to his receiving our parents' love. Children have an economic view of love, which has the appearance of being validated because of our physical limitations. Mom and dad can't be everywhere at once. Now, what happens in a healthy family, in a healthy family, when things go right, is that over time, children see that their parents really do love them, that their love is faithful, you know, this is confirmed in various ways, and eventually, the siblings who were our rivals become our friends. And this is all possible as we understand that our mom and our dad do treasure us, and they want all of us, and they love us. Now, Rebecca DeYoung has written a great book about the vices, and when it comes to envy, she says this. A self secure in its unconditional worth, a worth based on God's love, is a self free to affirm others' gifts without feeling threatened or thereby made inferior. It is a self free to love without anxiety that its own contributions will be found wanting. Overcoming envy requires acknowledging a deeply human need for unconditional love and acknowledging the source of this love. And the verse that she turns to for this is one I have turned to consistently myself, Isaiah 43, 4. You are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you. And so we see that that growing in our belovedness, it's not just for our own comfort, it's not just for the sake of mission, it is also for the blessing of our relationships. This frees us to love one another without the hindrances of our own insecurity. Now, following these events, David's popularity just escalates. Other of Saul's children proclaim loyalty to David. Servants of Saul proclaim loyalty to David. David is winning battle after battle after battle, even when Saul has set him up for defeat. And eventually Saul's attempts against David's life become so aggressive that David has to leave the palace. These are the start of his wilderness years. Biblically speaking, wilderness years are an evidence of call, a preparation of call. Abraham, Joseph, Elijah, Jesus, all had significant wilderness experiences the wilderness is the place where we are stripped of basic comforts we cannot conjure for ourselves what we need this is the place of broken friendships broken families sicknesses loneliness it's knee buckling it is the place where we are forced to absolute dependence on god our own illusions of of self-sufficiency are crushed this is the place where we find that he is faithful and so lucy actually gave us great preparation for this last night you know she said it is in these places in these places of weakness that we actually discover god's strength the author of hebrews puts it this way david who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, was made strong out of weakness. So the wilderness was his place of preparation for rule. Now this wilderness experience begins with a stop at Nob. This is where the the house of God was located at the time, the tabernacle. What happened there is of such significance, I'm not even going to touch it right now. That's something that you can do in your time of individual reflection. I'm simply going to say, you don't enter into the wilderness without provision. And so this provision is provided for David at Nob. And then David makes his way to a cave where he is founded, surrounded by followers that you wouldn't exactly recruit. So whereas Saul had been given men of valor, David is given men with baggage. This to me is actually one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. Chapter 22, verse 2, because it really is a picture of Christ's call to us. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul, gathered to him, and he became captain over him. And so this is a picture of the coming king. Christ was was not um, surrounded by the, the, the achieved and the established, but by the outcast. Not only that, he called them. I have not come to call the righteous, I have come to call sinners. And one of the things that you have in those last three chapters of Second Samuel that I referenced earlier, are the heroic deeds of these bitter men. And it's given by name, amazing thing. People fighting lions in the snow, just wild, wonderful stories. And you see what is possible when broken people are received and accepted by an anointed king. In the meantime, Saul's wretchedness comes to a breaking point. He finds out that David had received help at Nob. And so his response to this, this man who at one point had rid the land of witchcraft, this man who would not go into battle without a sacrifice, he now calls for the slaughter of all of the priests of God and their families. And I, I told you last night there you know Saul was was pretty easy to relate to in, in a lot of what we looked at last night, but but things really do take a, a criminal turn I mean this is this is sort of the, the the Disney villain at this point. The trajectory is just sloping down now the result of all of this is that the son of the high priest escapes and he runs to David. And so David now has the priestly presence with him, and, and better to be in the wilderness with the presence of God than to be in the palace without it. That is what Saul is left with. But on the face of things, things could not be worse for David. Nothing in the promises of God seem to be unfolding as, as anyone would expect. He is living on the run, um, and, and um, things are hard. Let's, let's look at what is um, kind of a, a breaking moment for David in chapter 24. In chapter 24, David and Saul find themselves in the same place. Chapter 24, verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Remember last night we said the greatest temptations we will ever face are the ones that don't seem obviously evil, but but to our own understanding might seem like the right thing. And as Satan did with Jesus, you can probably find a verse to go with it if you really want to. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now remember last night, we said that robes were symbolic of office. And so what you did with somebody's robe was an indication of your intent. To cut off the corner of the king's robe was to deny his rule. And so as David's heart is struck, this is not a mere prank. He realized he's, he's done a terrible thing. He said to his men, "'The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hands, my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed.'" So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And later on, David is going to present this corner of his robe as a sign of loyalty to Saul. And so for David, in this, he confesses his sin, he's able to be honest with himself, there's room, he understands, for forgiveness. He's going to be in a similar situation later on, where once again, he could attack Saul, but the only thing he does is take evidence, which he can then present to Saul to say, I am loyal to you. But Saul will not give up his pursuit. And so finally, we come to um, to a really heavy moment for David, and it's hard to know really what was on his mind with this. Uh, Some of this is a little bit of conjecture. In chapter 27, we read this. David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. David seeks refuge among the people that he has been called to eradicate. Now, what is going on here? Was this like the Holy Family escaping into Egypt? Um, Or was this some sign that he was beginning to doubt God's word? You know, was this a practical decision or was this his faith, you know, really starting to unravel here? We we don't say David was perfect. We say he was resilient um, because he always comes back to the promises of God. But here we have this very strange situation in which he is running to the enemies of God. And whatever is going on in his heart... All of us from time to time in our our life as Christians can find ourselves in a situation where it seems, sadly, that there is greater safety outside of the people of God. The church is a community of people who have been Declared whole, who are being made whole, but are still broken. And there are going to be times that you are hurt among God's people, um, where you seem to have greater acceptance outside. It could be that you've gone through some crisis and and it's outside of the church where you have greater understanding, or maybe even just some great transition in your life that changes how you gather with people, and and suddenly your main community that the people People who are at your fingertips are are not the believers. But when we seek refuge outside of God's people, sooner or later, there is going to come a test. There's going to become a point of decision. Are we faithful and loyal to the body? And for David, this comes after David has been fighting for the Philistines against people who were also enemies of Israel. There finally comes the day where the charge is going to be against Israel. What now? Well, David says to the king of the Philistines, he says, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And most commentators say that this is intentionally ambiguous, that David was going to take his men into battle and then turn on the Philistines and fight with Israel against them. We cannot know for certain. In the meantime, the author takes us away from this. He kind of leaves us on this edge of the cliff and, and he takes us to what's going on with Saul. So Saul now has you know, these people who are coming against him, and he is in a panic. He no longer has a legitimate way of seeking the Lord's will because he killed all the priests and, and, and the survivor has run off to David. And so the the, the man, who again had, had forbidden necromancy and gotten rid of all the witches, himself seeks out a witch because he wants some word of comfort from Samuel, and the Lord allows the spirit of Samuel to appear to Saul, but it's to pronounce his death. In the meantime, the Philistines say to their king, you are not going to let David and his men fight with us, we don't trust them. So they get sent back home to their town in, in, in in Philistia, and when they get there, they arrive to disaster. Their wives and their children have been taken by the Amalekites. The, the, David's own men are, are ready to have his head. And in David's case, he does have a legitimate means of seeking the Lord's will. And so he is told to go after the Amalekites to retrieve their wives, their children. He is promised that they will have success, and so they do so. And it's in this moment that we see again the heart of Christ in David. This is now chapter 30, verse 21. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook, the sore. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. This is a heart of grace. This is a foreshadowing of the parable of the hired workers we are to understand that God distributes grace extravagantly um, as far as he desires, not by any human metric of who deserves what. Now contrast this with Saul, who, if you'll remember, refused his men food in battle. These are two very different hearts. And where is Saul at this point? Chapter 31. He is coming to his end. 31 verse 2. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. Now, Saul had been sabotaging himself from the very start through disbelief. And now he finally does come to this very sad destruction. It's reminiscent a little bit of Judas. I feel like with David and Saul, we're given a little bit of a preview between men who were called, who were chosen, one with belief. One with with disbelief, both sinners, one who is able to confess and repent, one who never finds that door. Now, what is the ultimate fruit of our distrust? Um, Actually, I'm not going to use that word, ultimate. I'm just going to say, what is something that happens with distrust? There's a greater word on top of this. Look at verse 9. So the Philistines cut off Saul's head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news, to carry the gospel to the house of their idols and to the people, that the people of Israel had been defeated. And so the the result of a life that is lived in disbelief is the defamation of God's name. This is what we see. Now, this isn't the last word, and this is where this is really important. There are a couple things that we can take, just looking at this, this break this into the life of, of Saul. First, we see that there was nothing Saul could do to override the word God spoke over David. So the rest of his life was spent chasing this man. He had the whole army of Israel working with him to do it. They were not successful. His death is going to be the start of David's reign. And so with Jesus, we see from Jesus's very birth, there are threats against his life. The establishment is working against him. But what God has purposed will stand. David is going to come to the throne throne. Jesus sits on that throne. To this day, there is no one who can thwart God's purposes. And so fortunately, this means that our own struggles with disbelief, whatever the pain and the cost that comes with them, God's purposes stand. The other thing for us to know, I think just tied into this is that ultimately what God has planned for his people doesn't stand or fall with us. I think this is an important thing. I'm I'm telling you here that well, to know our belovedness, it's a great comfort, um, this is a word for our mission, this is a word for relationships, but at the same time, it is God's love that has the final say. And, and so there's no, no amount of disbelief on our part that is going to change the glorious things that God has planned for us. But of course, we do want to be living in the abundance of the life that Jesus wants for us. That is the better part. Now, what we're going to do next... We are going to have a time for individual reflection, looking at the provision that is given to David at Nob. And so um, let me check the time. Oh, we're good on, it's 1023. Um, And so I think that for this time of individual reflection, and Leslie, correct me if I'm wrong, um, I think that you can just sort of go wherever you would like to do this. You could stay in here, you could go to your cabin, you could wander the campus. but we should all maybe be back here by 10:55. By 10:55, we want to come back in here, um, where we're going to have a word from Forsyth, and so um, and so we want to you know really stay on for this and this time of individual reflection. This is a time for silence. I don't mean like a vow of silence. You know, if you need to borrow a pen, you can ask to borrow a pen, but, but don't, don't, don't assume that someone wants to talk to you. Well, that's not the way to put it, but someone might really be individually reflecting. And even if you're done, just honor the time of silence for everybody else.